Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We will study tonight verses 20 to the end of the chapter, verse 36. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 29. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began... The song to the Lord began also, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer, and they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings that the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs, All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord, and the consecrated offerings were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few and could not flay all the burnt offerings, so until the other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers the Levites helped them, until the work was finished, for the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, And there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people. For the thing came about suddenly. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these ancient records because we know they are full of instruction But more than that, they are full of grace for us, Lord. So help us to see your provision for us and let us respond with great thanks. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1544, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned a council in the city of Spire for the purpose of raising an army with which to overrun and put to an end the Protestant Reformation. Now in that crisis, Martin Bootser, the 
outstanding reformer of Strasbourg, called on John Calvin in Geneva to respond with a defense of the Reformation, explain why they had done it, why it was right, why it should be supported. And Calvin responded with what most of his peers would consider the finest book he ever wrote, certainly the most powerful. It was titled The Necessity of Reforming the Church. Now, in this book, Calvin rallied support for the besieged Reformation. In fact, he actually dedicated it to Charles V. But it had the effect of rallying support for the Reformation because of its remedy to Rome's false teaching of justification by works, to also to the Reformation's biblical reform of the sacraments and the restoration of biblical church government. And yet, first and foremost, Calvin argued, The Reformation had performed a vital reformation, a restoration of true worship among God's people from what he called the gross idolatry of medieval Catholicism. Robert Godfrey elaborates that Calvin's treaty reminds us why it is. It's somewhat counterintuitive. We probably would put justification through faith first. He puts worship first, and Godfrey reminds us why. Because salvation is not an end in itself. Our justification is a means to an end. And what is that end for which we are saved? The end for which we are saved is a relationship with the Lord. And since public worship provides one of our most important expressions of fellowship with God, Calvin insisted that our worship, this was the reformation they had done, our worship must be pleasing and honoring to him by being according to his word. Now, Calvin had a fellow spirit in the 8th century king of Judah named Hezekiah. Hezekiah's nation, when he came to the throne, was beset by so many difficulties. They were in real trouble. There were so many dire needs. They needed a diplomatic strategy to do something with the menace that was growing from Assyria, that he needed to rebuild Judah's army. He had to rebuild the walls of the city. He had to reinvigorate the nation's economy. We know, by the way, that he did all of those things. And yet the king saw that the most important, most fundamental problem, the greatest need, was that Judah had become alienated from the Lord by the idolatry fostered by his father, wicked king Ahaz. And so first of all priorities was a reformation of true worship for the renewal of saving faith in God. Well, that's what this chapter is about. Second Chronicles 29 records in Two main sections, we looked at the first half earlier, it records Hezekiah's reformation of worship. First, verses 1 to 19, was the cleansing of the building itself from idols. But then the second half of the chapter shows that there needed to be a consecration. There needed to be the actual beginning of the ministry. That the sins had to be atoned for. The priests and Levites had to be consecrated. The people had to be brought forward for the forgiveness of sin. Now, this work of consecrating the, the temple and its ministry occurs in three phases in our passage, three movements, each of which is focused on a particular type of offering and sacrifice that is made. First in verses 20, 29 to, or verses 20 to 24, we have the sin offerings that were made for the atonement of the nation's sins. Secondly, were the burnt offerings by which the priests and the Levites were reconsecrated for their worship and service. Third, were the thank offerings 
Some call them the fellowship offerings and the peace offerings that the people brought when their sins had been atoned for and their communion with God was restored. The sin offering, the consecration offering, and the thank offering really unfolds the reformation of worship. And by this means, the people of Judah experience together what the Apostle John calls each of us to enjoy. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, nine. Well, Hezekiah's vision for restoring true worship can be seen in the urgency that he placed upon it from the very beginning of his reign. Uh, back in verse 3, we learned that it was in the first year of his reign, in fact, the first month of the first year of his reign, that he reopened the closed doors to the temple. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and he fervently charged them to the work of consecration. That meant, first of all, that all the idols and all the accoutrements and the defilements of idolatry had to be physically removed from the temple. It took two weeks, we learned, as they did all that work. Now that successful start only heightened Hezekiah's zeal because in our passage we begin that on the very next day he rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. At daybreak on the very next day, he took the next step in reforming their worship. Now he summons with him the civil leaders of the nations. That's what we read, the officials of the city. And this shows that he intended not merely a reformation of the religious establishment, it was a reformation for the whole nation. Most governments today insist on a supposed neutrality when it comes to religion and faith. You know, that's really not true. Secular humanism is a religious view. But that's at least the posture. We, 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 we permit all faith. We, we take no stance in matters of religion. That's pretty much among Western democracies the standard line. Well, Hezekiah had no such view. He was a king of the covenant people of God, and he called his government officials to support the reform of biblical worship wholeheartedly. And they were all to come with the king and to stand before the temple as he devoutly observed the offering of sacrifices for the atonement of sin. They have come to make sin offerings for the atonement of the nation. Verse 21 says it's on behalf of the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. This is the sin atonement for the nation. Now to this end, they brought sacrifices. Verse 21, they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering. Now that number seven is suspicious. Biblically, it tends to mean completion, and the idea would seem to be that they had a sense of the, of the enormity of the sins that needed to be forgiven. And they wanted the full extent of them to be atoned for by the offerings that they brought. Now, the Lord committed the work of making the sacrifices to the priests. So we read that Hezekiah presented his offerings. In verse 21, he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. Now, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 to 17, outlines the procedure that we see here. The person who brought a sin offering, a sacrificial animal, was required to kill it. It seems likely then that Hezekiah and his officials personally slew these animals and then they would have drained the blood from them into basins. These basins were handed to the priests and you read, look at verse 21, Leviticus 1.5 says this, they took the blood and they threw it against the altar before the temple. The, the sprinkling of the blood 
This procedure was done for the bulls, then the rams, followed by the sacrificial lambs, and then finally the goats. The, the blood of the sin offering was to be sprinkled on the altar without the forgiveness, without the sprinkling of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, after the blood was offered, Leviticus 6, 1, 6, and 9 stipulated that the animal carcasses would become a burnt offering. The entirety of the animal would be consumed in the flames. Now, the purpose of all this is made clear in verse 24. The priest slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. The sprinkling of the blood was a way of acknowledging the guilt of the nation's sins, for which death was the penalty and atoning sacrifice was the God-offered remedy. Again, Hebrews 9.22 stipulates, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's, a, that's the principle of the sin offerings. Now, the off animals were offered as substitutes before God for the people who were guilty of sin, and the sprinkled blood celebrated God's offer to atone for their sin through sacrificial blood. Now, one essential component of the sin offering, you see it in verses 22 to 24, involved the laying of hands upon the head of the sacrificed goats. Leviticus chapter 4, 22 to 24, stipulates that when a king like Hezekiah became aware of the people's sin, he was to bring a sacrifice and place his hands upon its head. And the idea was that the sinner is identifying with the animal that's going to be slain, and there's a legal transfer. The theological term is an imputation. A transfer of the guilt of the nation, in this case, the king is laying the hands, from him to the sacrifice. Now, Leslie Allen writes that the laying of hands indicated a personal affirmation of one's sinful status before God and a sincere desire to have the broken relationship restored by sacrifice. Now, perhaps most famously, this procedure was to be done on the annual Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 describes it, the day every year for the sins of the nation to be atoned for. On that occasion, there were two goats who were brought. One of the goats was, it was decided by Lot, one of the goats would be slain, its blood would be sacrificed. It would be sprinkled upon the altar for atonement that, that symbolized God's punishment of death that that goat ritually bore. The second goat, called the scapegoat, would then symbolize the removal of the guilt from the people because of the sacrifice. Leviticus 16, to 22 reads, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goats. It's a transfer of guilt an imputation, and then this goat was to be sent away into the wilderness. The two goats together showed the one act of redemption. The one was slain, the shedding of blood and sacrifice for their sin. The second goat took the mark of their, took the guilt of their sin far away. First Leviticus 16.22 says, This goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. They'd never see him again. The sacrifice is a way of showing the sacrificial blood had totally removed their guilt. 
Now, the redemptive logic, then, of these sacrifices from Leviticus enters into what Hezekiah does. Verse 23, the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And so this, in this way, the king and his cabinet confess the sins of their kingdom before God, and they sought atonement through the offering of blood. Hezekiah intended this sacrifice with its confession of sin, with its faith in God's promise to redeem them through the blood of a true Savior, this is how he would restore the nation to the fellowship and blessing of God. Verse 24, the the king commanded that the burnt offering and sin offering should be made for all Israel. Now, these Old Testament sacrifices play a vital role in the faith and salvation of New Testament believers. Leslie Allen, I think, helpfully remarks that these rituals uh, functioned as a theological dictionary for the saving work of Jesus Christ when the true sacrifice came. When God's Son came into the world and offered his redemption, his sacrifice for the sins of his people, his gospel explicitly lays claim to this symbolism, to this dictionary, this, uh, this lexicon of terminology and the meaning of it was taken for the ministry of Jesus Christ in order that he would fulfill what they had promised. This is why when John the Baptist spied the Lord Jesus Christ walking beside the Jordan River, there's so many of things he could have said. Oh, there were so many ways to hail him, but John Baptist understood the primary reason for which he came. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to fulfill all that was taught. All the ideas developed in the Old Testament were intended for him to fulfill. The spotless nature of the sacrifices. You had to bring an undefiled lamb, an unspotted sacrifice that looked forward to the sinless nature of Christ, his perfect fulfillment of God's law. He had no sins of his own to confess or atone. And like the animals that Hezekiah brought to the temple, Jesus was slain on the cross on behalf of sinners who trust in him. His blood was shed for our true atonement. When you and I come in faith to Jesus, we admit, like Hezekiah did in laying on his hands, that we deserve to die for our sins, but we accept God's gracious offering of a sacrifice in his son. Matthew Henry puts it this way, by faith we lay our hands on the Lord Jesus and so receive his atonement. Romans 3, 20, 23 to 25, powerfully explains the gospel offering in sacrificial terms Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received in faith. God had made, God provided the sacrifice. A propitiation was the sin offering to turn away God's wrath from us. That the the guilt is imputed to him and he bears it in our place. We receive atonement through faith. Well, it's Hezekiah's sin offering, looking forward to the true sacrifice of Jesus, makes a point that is vital for everyone today. Hezekiah wanted the nation to be restored to the Lord. He wanted the Lord's favor to be back upon them, although they were sinners. 
And every sinner today, every person today who is a sinner, that's all of us, we face the same dire need. How can we be restored to God and his love when our sins cover us with guilt in his presence? And my friends, we need God. We need God in this life. We certainly need him in death. And after death, we need his grace. How can we be restored though we are sinners? Andrew Stewart writes, no one can come to God without having their guilt first taken away. And there is no forgiveness until the penalty that sin deserves is paid by the shedding of blood. Either Jesus will pay the penalty in our place on the cross, or we will pay the penalty in eternal judgment. Hezekiah's offering, therefore, makes the point. It looks forward to the fulfillment declared in that great statement of the Apostle John, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now the New Testament again, Hebrews 10 particularly, makes the point that even the Old Testament believers understood that the animals were not actually able through their blood to atone for the nation and for the people. Hebrews says they they understood that perfectly clearly. It's impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews 10 verse 4. And Hezekiah knew that, the people knew that. But God was going to send his son, and he did send him to become incarnate. The son of God became man. Why? Because man owed the debt. It was as man that he had to pay it. But it was because he is God that he could pay it and yet triumph. He paid the debt of all our sins. So Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hezekiah was a, was a godly king. He loved his nation. He wanted to see a restoration of sinners to God. He, he wanted to see a national renewal. And he knew it must always begin with the preaching of Jesus Christ. Do we know that today? We long for America to be turned around. Oh, I long for that. I know you do. We see the chaos. We see the, the laws, the, the applications, the, the fads, the habits And there's so many things we want to do, my friends, it will never avail unless Jesus is preached. Because it is only through the blood of Jesus that we can be restored to God, and it is only with God's blessing that we can turn from our sins. The gospel must be preached. The the preaching of the gospel, Hezekiah knew, must be the center point, the focal point of any national renewal so that sinners would be restored to God through faith in the lamb he has sent. That's the point of the sin offering. That's the first phase of this renewal. There also, however, secondly, needed to be a reconsecration of the priesthood. The first half of the chapter is the cleaning up of the temple, getting the idols out. Then the sin offerings are made, but the priesthood needs to be restored to their ministry and their service. And many of them, the priests and the Levites, had been polluted by their own participation in idolatry. But even if they hadn't been, the temple's door had been closed all these years. The doors had literally been locked, and so it now needed to be reopened. There needed to be a reconsecration. And just as when David, remember in Second Samuel, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant up, he is the king oversees the Levitical work. Or when Solomon, who built the temple, when they dedicated, it was Solomon who saw that it was done in God's way. So also now, King Hezekiah takes charge 
to arrange the consecration of the priests. Well, the sin offerings had been made, and the Levites and the priests would now be consecrated by a burnt offering. Now, burnt offerings were those in which the entire offering was consumed in the fire of the altar. Many other sacrifices, in fact, we'll see some, involve the offering of the fat of it, but then the animal could be eaten either by the person who brought it or by the Levites who did the offering. But the burnt offering was a symbol of one's consecration to the work of the Lord. And this is what the priests and the Levites now were going to do. They were to consecrate themselves wholly to God's service by means of burnt offerings. Andrew Stewart notes, it was a picture of how completely the worshiper consecrated himself, set him or herself apart today, we'd say, to God, casting ourselves upon his mercy, giving ourselves for his service. This was represented by the burnt offerings. Now, what's very interesting, though, on this occasion is the care that Hezekiah took in ensuring the musical accompaniment. Verses 25 and 6 show that the Levites were stationed in the temple with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the priests with trumpets were also on hand to play. The chronicler notes Hezekiah's carefulness in arranging all the details of this, even the musical accompaniment, in obedience, verse 25, to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through the prophets. Now, Gad and Nathan were servants of King David when that great spiritual giant, that prophet, had established the whole temple pattern for musical worship. He wrote much of the music himself. And First Chronicles gives great attention, by the way, to the organization by David of the singing and the music and the instrumentation. Now, the chronicler notes that these commandments were from the Lord through his prophets. I think what he's saying is, he's saying is you won't find this in the books of Moses, and I know that. But don't worry, David was a prophet. And when David made these arrangements for the temple, that too, along with the original established in Leviticus and Exodus, this too is according to the commandment of the Lord. And so as we saw before, when he summoned the priests and the Levites to cleanse the building, Hezekiah is carefully going to consult and follow all the instructions of Scripture. He's going to engage in outstanding biblical scholarship, biblical theology. He's going to, in fact, in many cases, the procedures are right there, and he's going to implement them to the letter. Now, it's this kind of attention to detail that informed the Protestant reformers. Men like John Calvin, especially, when they were reconstituting the worship of the Reformation churches, and they saw how the Bible shows that the godly leaders, the kings who were blessed, were careful in doing everything according to the word of God. And this then became what we call the regulative principle of worship. John Calvin explained this in his defense of the Reformation. He said, the rule that distinguishes pure worship of God from its corrupt form is that we must not mix in what seems good to us, but we must observe what he requires who alone has authority to command it. He's referring to God. Therefore, Calvin argued, if we want God to approve our worship, we must carefully keep this principle that he enforces with utmost severity. 
And Calvin's not making that up. He's reflecting on the biblical examples. The biblical precepts were true worship, acceptable worship. Worship that is blessed is worship that is according to God's word. I, I asked the question in our new members class. Does it, does it matter how we worship? Yes, the Bible argues. Well, who gets to decide how we're supposed to worship? The answer is God gets to decide. How are we ever supposed to know what God wants in worship? The answer is through his word which abundantly provides this information. Well, this is exactly what we see in Hezekiah. But by the way, that's completely contrary to the spirit of the age, even in the church today. Calvin makes a very important statement that the fact that we like it, elsewhere in that same book, he says, the fact that we like it should make us suspicious. We should be particularly alarmed if if an approach to worship appeals to ourselves. Why? Because we are, in our nature, idolaters. No, we must have warrant from the word of God, and he was right. And this is what we see in Hezekiah, the careful arrangement of the musicians and the singers. But notice as well, here's this other thing we see. There's a highlighting here of the close relationship between the sacrificial offerings and the praise that is given. Look at verse 26. Hezekiah commands that as soon as the burnt offerings began, the musicians were to begin playing then. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. So the singing started when the offering was being made. And the trumpets accompanied the instruments of David, king of Israel. Wow, I think we can scarcely appreciate how wonderful this was. For the first time in years and years, the sounds of singing were wafting down from the place where it should have been going all along, the temple of the Lord. The praise is going forth, and why is it happening? Because atonement had been made for sin and the ministry of God's priests had been restored. Cyril Barber comments, when people get right with God, they begin to experience the joy of the Lord in their hearts. That's what's being shown here. It's the forgiveness of our sins that causes our hearts to want to praise him and gives us a song to sing. Here too is a feature of the Protestant Reformation. It's been a feature of virtually every revival of saving religion ever since. That whenever the gospel is preached, clearly there's an unleashing of joy in the redeemed heart and how often it takes the form of congregational singing to the Lord. Isn't it one of our greatest privileges to stand shoulder to shoulder in the midst of the preaching of the gospel and to sing praise to him? It's the very thing emphasized here. Now, to make it really clear, Hezekiah commanded not only for the singing to begin when the sacrifices started, but for the singing to end when the sacrifices were concluded. Verse 28, all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And so the singing and playing of the Levites began and ended precisely in sync with the sacrifice of the burnt offerings. Now you see again, the link is made between atonement and praise. Martin Selman writes, the praise of God is made possible only by the removal of our sin. And it is only the redeemed, forgiven person who truly can sing God's praises. Let me ask you, do you find worship in church to be dull? Many, many, many people do. I wonder if that's true, if maybe you have never considered God's grace to forgive your sins through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, when the gospel is proclaimed and you realize that it is your sins 
that Jesus bore upon the cross. And it is God's grace for you, a guilty sinner, so that you might be redeemed and set free to eternal life. My friend, your heart will not, it cannot remain unmoved. Let me say, if you find worship dull, I wonder if you have considered your need to be forgiven. Because when you see that cross and Jesus dying for you, you will want to praise God. And if you've done that, if you've confessed your sins, if you've believed in Jesus, if the guilt of your sin is removed through his blood, then you really have something to sing about with all your heart. We're not told exactly what songs they sang, but a good text would have been Psalm 51. And here's what David said in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing. Deliver me and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Psalm 51, 14. Well, in the time of the Reformation, congregational singing had not existed for centuries in the medieval Catholic Church. Why is that? Because the gospel had not been preached. It had been hidden. It had been denied. It had been obscured. And so when God used Martin Luther to restore the good news of justification through faith alone, I'm quoting here from the classic history of the Reformation, Daubigny, he points out that then hymns were multiplied and they spread rapidly among the people and they contributed powerfully to rouse the church from its sleep. You know, if you look at the background of many of our most beloved hymns today, you will find that they often arose in the the context of revival, in the joyful air of new life, a fresh restoration of the gospel leads to a redeemed people singing and writing songs and hymns, giving praise from their hearts to the Lord. Well, when the consecration of the priests and the Levites was concluded, the temple ministry had now been restored there was now a consecrated priesthood and as soon as the sacrifices were offered and the singing came to an end look at verse 29 the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped all present renewed their obeisance to the lord of heaven and earth yes that included king hezekiah he became a simple worshiper in the presence of the true king god on high And then the singing resumed, employing the Psalms of Asaph. Verse 30, and they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down, and they worshipped. Well, Hezekiah's reformation of worship had succeeded in cleansing the temple buildings. That was the earlier part of the chapter. And then we've seen the atoning of the sins of the nation, and then the reconsecrating of the priests through burnt offerings. All that remained now was for the people to come. And so the king acted without hesitation. Verse 31, then Hezekiah said, you have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. He calls to the assembly, the people, to now come and worship the Lord. The church was open for worship. At the invitation of the king, they came, verse 31, and the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. That's really the highlight of these final verses. We had the sin offerings for atonement. We had the burnt offerings for consecration. Now we have the thank offerings for praise. 
for praise to the Lord. These are the offerings in which the fat portions alone were offered and the offerer himself could eat the, 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 the food or, or, or maybe the Levites would in some cases. That would happen as well. In some cases we're told that people had a particular zeal and those of a willing heart brought not only thank offerings but they then brought uh, burnt offerings. Again, the burnt offering was a higher offering, a, a sense of wholehearted consecration to the Lord. Seventy bulls, a hundred rams, two hundred lambs for burnt offerings. With them came a large number of, of fellowship offerings, six hundred bulls, three thousand sheep. You see, what had happened was the good news of the forgiveness of sin had gone forth and the, the sin offering had been made. The temple clergy had been restored to their preaching of the gospel through their rituals. And so the people responded with the willing hearts that are typical when the gospel is preached today. And these sacrifices, the thank offerings, the, 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 the sacrifices for God's praise have their allegory today in the tithes and the offerings that the church members contribute so that the work of the gospel may go forth so that God's church may be built up as well as the offering of our time and our, of our gifts in service to God's people. Romans 12.1 summons us to respond to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's the thank offering. Holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship. Offer the service of your life to the Lord. Well, so numerous were the burnt offerings brought to the temple that the priests were too few in number to perform the work. They could not flay, we are told, all the burnt offerings. Burnt offerings had to have the skin removed. That then would be burned elsewhere. There weren't enough priests to do it. Now, apparently, not all the priests had come to be consecrated. They were rather slack. But the, but the Levites, who'd come in larger numbers, they came and they filled in. That's what we're told here. Until other priests, verse 34, had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. You see, this is what happens. When the gospel is preached and there's enthusiasm, where, where, where zeal is lagging in one place as it rises up somewhere else. And commitment is shown to the work of the Lord. Well, look at verse 35. The chronicler writes, Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And this is the great achievement in the reign of King Hezekiah, the renewal of faith and true worship. And it would resound. The effects of this are going to be felt throughout this godly king's reign. And he has lots of other achievements. You can read about them. Some of them archaeologists have discovered. The book of Kings talks about some of them. Uh, but this initial act, the very first thing he did, the priority of his attention, reforming and restoring the worship of God's people, this must be considered Hezekiah's greatest and chief work. For fellowship had been restored between the people and God, and they were being led by a king in the spirit of David and Solomon. They were being served by a newly consecrated priesthood in the ways of Aaron and they willingly followed in a renewal of national religion and we may presume in personal godliness. You know, when we get to chapter 32, a few chapters down the road, we're going to discover what is probably the most famous event from Hezekiah's reign. And that's God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem when the Assyrians came under Sennacherib and they had this massive army and they destroyed the army of Judah and they besieged the city. 
And you see, all the other good works Hezekiah did in that way came to really nothing. He had renewed the army. The army was wiped out. He'd built fortifications. The fortifications were overrun. He'd built up the walls of Jerusalem. They were not going to hold. But he had restored the people to the Lord. And this is what did not fail them. For when that day came, 701 B.C. is the date. It should, we should know the date. It's a great moment in church history. When the, the army of the Assyrians surround the city and the Rabshakeh, uh, the, 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 the herald of Sennacherib is mocking Hezekiah and, and the people and their faith and their king that night, God acted. God sent the angel of death and we will find that 185,000, essentially the entire Assyrian army was wiped out in a single night. And yes, by the way, there are Inklings of this in secular records from that reign. It happened, and it happened not because of the other duties he attended to. He needed to build up the army. He should have tried to build up the fortifications. He should have done all the things that he did, and none of them worked, but this worked. Now, this, this produced benefit. This saved them. God. The most important thing he ever did is the most important thing we can ever do. And that is he brought the people in renewed faith and a restoration of fellowship and communion with God. And there is a Savior by his might alone who never will fail us. One of the hymns that sprang from the 16th century Reformation celebrates the same faithful God and his saving power that avails today. Whenever we turn to God in true faith through the gospel and we worship him with full hearts according to his word, it goes like this, who trusts in God a strong abode in heaven and earth possesses, who looks in love to Christ above, no fear his heart possesses. In you, dear Lord, we own sweet hope. In you alone, dear Lord, we own sweet hope and consolation. Our shield from foes, our balm from woes, our great and sure salvation. You know, he is that God today. And it remains our chief priority to be right with him and to commune with him in faith and true worship. Well, let me direct you to the final verse of Second Chronicles 29. It makes one last point that Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people. What a comment he makes at the end. For God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. Now, on the one hand, the chronicler is marveling at the speed by which this all happened. This is like a month into his reign, and he's reformed the nation. He's brought the people to the Lord in faith through the blood. He brought joy to their hearts, and he reversed the nation's decline. It was so rapid. But, but notice that their joy focused on the knowledge that it really wasn't Hezekiah who did it. It really wasn't him. It was the Lord himself because God had provided for his people. In fact, the entirety of this festive scene of renewed faith and fervor was caused and given by the Lord. The people brought their sacrifices as symbols for the atonement of sin, but it was all a picture of what God would do for them, what God has provided for us in the gift of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only meaning their gifts made was they pointed forward. They were a way of trusting in the gift that God would give, 
God provided his son. God set forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. That is the gift. That is the provision of God in which we are saved. In fact, the very scene we've witnessed, this wonderful scene, the, the renewed spirit of faith and adoration, it all starts in the noble heart of this wonderful King Hezekiah, but it's God who did it. It's God who was working secretly and unseen with sovereign spiritual power. Matthew Henry notes that many of these worshipers had been bowing down to idols just weeks earlier. But God had prepared the people, he says, by the secret influences of his grace. And there was renewal, there was faith, there was joy in the salvation of the Lord. This is all his provision I wonder if we realize that that same truth should be said of our worship services today, including the joy of singing and our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. None of these are things that we do for the Lord. These are not achievements that we perform or present. No, it's God's gift for us through his son, the Lord Jesus. It's gracious work in us by the Holy Spirit God has provided This is why all the praise, all the glory, all the honor belongs to him alone. You see, what belongs to us? You say, what does that leave for us? Oh, only the joy of our salvation. Only a song to sing to his praise. Only the blessings of God which he gives one upon another. You see, no wonder Martin Bootser and John Calvin and all the other reformers of the 16th century, together with their princes and and, and their churches, No wonder they were so zealous to respond to the threats of the Holy Roman Emperor and the armies of the Catholic invaders. They had a sense that God had given them the gospel. God had restored true worship, and yes, if need be, they were prepared to die for it. So great was their sense of privilege, so great was their commitment to defend the free offer of the gospel that they were willing And they were made strong. Well, our commitment to the gospel today, my friends, should be no less fervent. Moreover, when we gather in God's house, the joy of our praising the Lord will be raised high in our hearts when we realize that it is God who is among us, that it is God who is providing for our salvation. It is God who is giving us this worship. And whether it happens gradually over time or whether it happens suddenly the way it did in Hezekiah's time, whenever God's people gather in saving faith for true worship according to God's word, we may gratefully affirm, joyfully embrace the chronicler's perspective. God has provided for his people. Father, we worship you. We praise you with joy in our hearts. And Father, these are obscure things, it seems. It happened long ago, but Lord, we understand your word. It's our salvation depicted in an earlier form. You are the same God of Hezekiah, and you're with us today. You're the one answering our prayers. It's you working by your spirit in our lives. Well, Father, would we, like them, with a willing spirit, bring ourselves in faith before you? Would we make the thank offering of our lives, relying on the sin offering? You've done through your Son. Indeed, Lord, may we consecrate ourselves wholeheartedly to love you and serve you and to be your witnesses in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.